Hey, Jared, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time this morning or this afternoon. I'm not sure exactly where you are, but I appreciate it. I'm very much looking forward to get to learn a little bit about you and a little bit about your writing. So is it okay if we start at the beginning and I ask you where you're from? Yeah, I am from, uh, I live in, in Queens, New York. And I'm, I grew up in, in New Jersey. So, Oh, uh, wonderful. What was that been like for you living in that environment? Growing up is weird. I, uh, I grew up in a very small town in South Jersey. So most people, when they think of Jersey are thinking of the area closest to New York. And I grew up in the area that wanted to be Philadelphia. I was about 15 minutes, 15 minutes from Philly. You know, my parents were both born and raised in Philly and had South Philly accents. And, um, but I grew up in a very small town, um, that you probably never heard of called Pittman had like, you know, two and a half square miles and very small, knew everybody graduated with 130 kids in my high school and had known them pretty much my whole life. And, uh, I found it kind of confining and provincial and narrow-minded on on many things and mm. uh college kind of confirmed that and then moving to the city uh completely confirmed that as we i live in the most diverse borough <laughs> or maybe even the most diverse place in in the world um queens is very diverse so mm. i grew up in a very like it was very white and uh there was one uh one kid who is african-american or in my class and that was that was the diversity element of the of the town from wow. what i can remember so it's very very different um you know i went to rutgers uh new brunswick for college and so that was I mean, you know it was liberating and and, and uh, amazing to be there mm. what were you uh reading at the time that you discovered poetry what sparked your interest i guess i was you know i really loved english class in in high school and uh, I think in tenth grade, my uh, the curriculum was um, the Romantics, and I really liked you know Wordsworth's poetry at the time, and and started trying to write my own Wordsworthian type of nature poetry, and you know it was very very bad, <laughs> and uh, you know it was all just like flowers and trees, and I still write about that kind of stuff, but I I mm. you know I think I I think I have a better handle on how to how to write it than I did then. And then I, I went to, uh, I went to Rutgers and joined the anthologist, uh, literary magazine there, um, group of guys, uh, that I work, we work on submissions and I joined the, that crew. And at the time I was very, um, you know, I was much more invested in my Jewish identity and I, and things that I had been reading around the Holocaust. And so a lot of my writing went around that and, and, and other things And I was reading, you know, I was taking, uh, English classes where I'm reading the modernists and I'm trying to sound like a modernist. So that was another stage. Mm. And then I just stopped writing after college. I, I went to grad school for a PhD in English lit and that took up a lot of my time. And then I, I left that, started a family and um, started teaching full time mm. uh, at uh, New York City Public Schools. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, that just ate up all my time. And then the pandemic hit and I, and my grandmother had died, who was like 
and not not related to the pandemic. She she died before it, thank goodness. Mm. Um, she was very much into my writing and always asking, why aren't you writing? Why aren't you writing? Why aren't you writing? And then the pandemic hit and I was like, why am I not writing? And I decided to start writing in earnest and then start sending it out publication and, mm. um, you know, growing over the last couple of years. Mm. So there was a time with family work and, and the teaching things of that nature that you felt maybe prevented you or it just wasn't in your, in your mind at the time due to bandwidth. Yeah, it just was not on the radar. A lot of my, especially in grad school, my writing was very much, uh, you know, it was academic. And I felt like that was where I needed to put all my energy, you know, taking several classes that have 30 page papers due for them. That takes yeah. a, lot of, a lot of your time. And then, you know, when I started teaching, I kind of threw myself into that in a creative way, trying to be, you know, try, in your first five years of teaching, you're just kind of a mess and you don't really understand <laughs> how to use your brain. Um, within the classroom, because you have to like, you know, know the content, but then also deliver the content and manage these crazy children and get the pacing right. And so it's just a lot. And so I was spending like all my free time before I had my children. I spent all my free time trying to figure out how to do that as mm -hmm. best as I could. And then I, as soon as I figured that out, I had children and that ate up all of my life. <laughs> One thing supplanted the other, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, pandemic kind of like, makes you realize like this is the 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 time you have is yours to to choose how to handle it and mm -hmm. i was like i can you know i w i was not able to focus on on television or even reading at the beginning of the pandemic because of stress and i just right the only thing I, the only thing i could read was um was poetry because it was short yeah i could absorb it and i could think about it and it, some of it was very uplifting and it was helpful. And then I was like, well, maybe I actually the Dodge Poetry Festival, which happens in New Jersey, they did a virtual one and they did one uh, uh, for teachers where they sent out like a packet of poems to read and they sent out prompts to write. And it was just like, you know, kind of a meditative write every day mm. kind of process where it was like very low stakes. And I would just start, I was like, I'm gonna try this because I need something. You know, this is April, a, a month into the pandemic. And I started writing and then I started sharing it with a couple of people. And then I just started, I kept it, kept at it. And then uh, eventually realized like, oh, I could do this. And I took a couple of workshops to really kind of get some craft uh, into it. Cause if before that it was just kind of like, what am I thinking of? I'll just write this, yeah. you know, <laughs> Car alarm outside. I'm gonna write about that. Um, you know, not really great stuff, but I was, you know, it was getting me to train my senses to think about how do you write about anything. So, when you were uh, earning your degree, your MA in English literature, what led you to specialize in uh, the Romantics and the 18th century literature? And and could you tell me a little bit about how that came to fruition? How that came to be? strangely it so in, in in undergrad i was very much into 20th century um global post-colonial literature i really really i wrote my my honors dissertation at rutgers on um on the english patient by michael andacha mm -hmm. who is a poet as well and uh that book is actually poetry in my mind but it is a novel so I went, I, I applied to a bunch of grad schools and got into Johns Hopkins and 
they were like, you're a Renaissance guy because I had written a little bit about Milton mm. in my, my personal statement. And they're like, oh, you, you might want to work on the Renaissance and, 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 you know, the 16th century, 17th century. And when I got there, the core group of academics was very focused on 19th century and below. Um, oh, and see. so my choices were, you know, the 20th century, which I liked, was not something that a professor there, because it was a very small program. There were like five professors. They didn't specialize in the things that I wanted to specialize in. And so I felt I needed to go in that direction. So I was, I specialized in the novel, uh, the history of the novel. And I, wow. I had to, and I had to pick a century and the rise of the novel, you know, occurred in the 18th century and 18th century literature is very weird. But the long 18th century contains the romantics because um, I didn't want to be a Victorianist. Um, a lot of people already were. So it was also like a little bit strategic. Who do I work oh. with? Because there were 10 of us and we had to pick different professors to work with and you can't all work with the same one. So it's like, okay, <laughs> who can I work with? Well, I really like this guy. He's 18th century. He does a little bit of post-colonial. Maybe I can get that in there. And so I kind of picked 18th century. So the rise of the novel stuff is kind of what I focused on in that. Um, and the romantics became a part of that. And I still very much, in, when I, I teach AD literature now, and I, you know that, kind of, that stuff comes up, the history of literature comes up a lot. And yeah. uh, on Shelley and Frankenstein a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there are any standouts in your mind or things that, that you prefer from that time period that have influenced you. Um, I mean, Frankenstein, I think, is one of the best novels out there. I, I, I think Mary Shelley is just, she's, she's the inspiration for so much of the genre fiction that people love, but it's a great intellectual novel to begin with. Uh, I love teaching that. Um, as far as inspirations, I think, you know, for my own writing, everything current, I'm much more invested in the current stuff than, than the historical stuff trying to go back and be <laughs> romantic anymore that, that impulse is gone um been there done that yeah so uh, you know I'm focusing, i that was kind of where my reading went when i started came back to it this time it was like you know when i was in college it was it was elizabeth i love elizabeth bishop i love ted kuser and i i i would say they both have a very uh i love image imagery as like my go-to mm. um sort of tool in my tool belt and they were the ones that like, you know, the Elizabeth Bishop poems, um, the filling station, um, Carolyn Forche's, um, the Colonel, just the way that they can make an image so powerful and meaningful within their, their work. Mm. Um, and so, but what I tried to do once I started thinking about it now was like, okay, well, what are people doing now? And I started reading um, Victoria Chang and Diane Seuss and um, just reading, you know, R Ross Gay and trying to read as many different types of writers and different um, angles hmm. and just get a sense of what are people doing? How have they done it? What, and, you know, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, Ross Gay was great because uh, the sort of joy that he's able to to bring to poetry is uh just kind of you know wonderful and uplifting and you know still serious still still uh elegiac but but you know a tone that's that's helpful in times yeah. when you're like because you know everybody's going to like let's go to mary oliver who i loved in high school 
and I still have a, a respect for, but I feel like there are, it's like this weird, it, she's one of those ones that straddles like the serious and the popular, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. If there could be a snapshot of your poetry and your writing right now, how would you describe that in your development as a poet and writer? How do you see your poetry? I feel like I have a weird range of, it would have to be like a collage. Because mm. uh, I, I mean, I have various, there's, I would say people, if you ask, what is a Jared Belloff poem? It's probably something uh, very nature oriented. I've been focusing a lot on climate change in a current project for over the last year. And a lot of that stuff's getting published. Um, but there is, I, I have these little pockets of interest and in, in writing styles that aren't as prolific but they're fun and, and interesting to me so i have these culture poems that are just silly and and but trying to mesh that with something very serious so like i have one about jeff bezos launching himself into space but i'm using <laughs> renma's um is it Ren? no it's rubens um fall of fate um it's an ekphrastic um poem where i'm looking at Jeff Bezos flying into space and comparing it to the horse's ass that's in the center of the painting. Oh, wow. um, and, and it's, you know, it starts out very like serious and then turns into something sort of um, politically silly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I have a series of those. I have one about, there's this weird thing that happened in Brittany, France, where they started getting all these Garfield phones washing up on shore. <laughs> And so I wrote about that, but, it, but, it, but in a way that talks about xenophobia and immigration. So they're like wow. being inundated by these Garfield phones, but it's about immigrants like coming to their shores. Oh, I can't wait to check that one out. That sounds incredible. Yeah, I was going to say you can find it at the Daily Drunk, which is uh, the, this magazine that focuses mostly on pop culture. So I'll write. Oh, I'll, lovely. There'll be a prompt or something that'll come up on Twitter, and I'll be like, oh, "I'm going to write that and send that out to to Sean <laughs> at, at Billy Drunk." And um, you know, and I and I edited for them an anthology of Marvel poetry, so I have a whole. Oh uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that experience and what that was like, uh, because it, it sounds incredibly interesting. It's called Marvelous Versus, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So how yeah. was that for you? How did you get involved there? Uh, so I I just pitched it to him and said. Hey, they had done a couple of like, I'd seen a few advertisements for like Mallrats anthology and like Lord of the Rings anthology. And I was like, there needs to be a Marvel anthology. And that, that actually came to mind because a couple of people that I really respect wrote some amazing things, both on the, the um, uh, Daily Drunk website. Um, so Victoria Buitron wrote um, this poem about um, the Black Widow movie, which is kind of like a review of the movie, and but it's a screed against like, of course the 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 woman who's not able to have children is the one that can sacrifice herself uh, because oh. you're worth it. And uh, it was a really interesting take and wow. necessary take, and it was so powerful. Uh, and then at the same time, I saw um, Joan Glass published a poem um, with the Lantern Review, and it was on her uh korean um identity and her daughter and watching iron man and i was like oh wow and i think i read like maybe a year before that in um I forget what journal it was but i read this great uh 
this great Wolverine poem. So I was like, mm. there's a bunch of people writing really cool stuff. And so what I, I just pitched it, those three uh, poems I sent, I sent them to Sean. I said, there's, there's something here. And I pestered him for a while and uh, he's like, yeah, let's go. And so I just started, um, you know, advertising on Twitter and then going after probably eight or nine people that I had read in the meantime, that, uh, including Joan and, and Victoria um, to get their work. And I got everybody that I sought out and that became like a core. And mm. then it became like, I, there were people that I was soliciting, to, like, you need to write a poem about so-and-so and you need to write a poem <laughs> about so-and-so. And they, they delivered and it was kind of great. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you think that being able to use contemporary references in this kind of work can open up the the poetry conversation to the commu- to the community outside of the poetry community? Is there something to that effect that happens when you write, say, a Marvel poem rather than just something that is more academic or or more within a, a more traditional subject matter? Yeah, I mean, part of my thinking was I want to I wanted to put together an anthology that was about things that, you know, the the sort of zeitgeist of our culture now, like there's you, you can't every couple months there's a new Marvel movie or television show coming out on Disney Plus, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's talking about it. So I was my my thought process was could I put together something that was referencing that, allowing people to tap into some really interesting things, but I wanted to try to also use it as a vehicle to talk about deeper things as anybody would use any poetic vehicle, right? It's like mm-hmm. the poem uh, about folding laundry and mortality, but also about WandaVision or this <laughs> poem, which is uh, Amarak Huey wrote that poem and it's, it's fantastic. I can't fold laundry without thinking about it. Um, <laughs> and But in a way that like people recognize themselves, people recognize these really big things, but also like are attracted to that because it delivers the message through a vehicle that they all recognize mm. and understand. And I, it was almost like, you know, the teacher in me was like, see, poetry can do these things that you didn't expect them to do. Um, it doesn't matter if it's Marvel or not, but you like the fact that it's Marvel. So um, I, I was hoping that it would attract people that don't read poetry, but like Marvel to understand that poetry has something meaningful to say. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to avoid more of a, like, I didn't want the poems that I was collecting to be straight up. Let me just have this fun story about this character that people love. I wanted it to 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 travel in different directions with it. And, and, you know, for the most part, there was some, there were some persona poems that I, I ended up choosing that I think um, did such a really good job. Like, I think you could totally teach from this book. A few of my <laughs> friends that are teachers and poets and uh, made it into the anthology actually have used it a little bit as a tool. Mm-hmm. There, there, you could teach tone from it. You could teach um, imagery and, and metaphor and, all those things that we teach in in literature, like when I was in tenth grade, the, the romantics, yeah. right, right. I think the ones that you learn because they're the canon. But you can, I I think, teaching what's being written now is is just as important, mm-hmm. um, if not more important, because it be, can become a conversation. One of the coolest things about Twitter is that you know I'll read a book, and I'll I'll tweet out that I like the book, and I'll tag the author, not expecting anything, and yeah. half the time. The, 
half the time they'll write back and be like, thank you so much. <laughs> or they'll, they'll DM me and be like, that was really nice of you to say. And I'll, I'll you know, say a few more words and I'll have a conversation. And sometimes I've actually made uh, become friends with those writers hmm. over a conversation. And so it's just kind of neat to be able to have that interactive quality within yeah. the writing um, and the reading. Yeah. Now, in terms of, oh, oh go go ahead. I, I apologize. I didn't, well, didn't say anything. Oh, okay, wasn't <laughs> sure. Um, in, in terms of feeling like like you can reach people this way, is this something that you've always felt that contemporary work could do, or is this something that you started thinking about after you became an educator? I I think being an educator definitely um, tied into it because you know when I first started out, I was building off I've been teaching for 15 years mm. and when I first started teaching it was like who are the canonical people that I know okay I'll go to poets.org too and I'll find some stuff and that was it and I would teach the same people over and over and I think as soon as I started reading to write it expanded the way that I taught mm. um, as well and so I you know I'm teaching I think that's it another way that I I stumbled upon a a, a spider-man multiverse poem by natasha rao mm -hmm. that uh is you know fantastic it made it into the anthology she was really gracious enough to let me do it but i found it on an education website mm -hmm. on like contemporary work um and i think that the, this the interplay i wanted to try to get my students especially to see like this isn't this old dead thing you know poetry is one of the oldest literary forms but it's not dead. And people like to say it's dead, um, but I think it, it's just living in this other pocket that people don't necessarily look at. And so as an educator, as an editor, I wanted to try to show them that world. Right. Before we move on to a little bit more poetry and peer reviewing, I wanted to ask you what it means to be a teacher mentor. What does that entail? And, and how does that kind of serve you in other areas of your life? So I was, I've been a part of um, various programs at my school for the past 10 years, um, helping new teachers. There's uh, several programs that have existed in, in different capacities where basically gotten a one-to-one -one mentoring. Um, it's like student teaching, but for the full year as a teacher with a mentor. Mm -hmm. And so I was served as that mentor for many years. And um what it does is allows somebody one of the hardest parts about teaching is juggling all that stuff that's going on in real time and then reflecting on it like why how does it work how did what's uh -huh. what's working not working and that process of collaboration and reflection i think has a universal um application to a lot of things that go on like just that ability to reflect certainly uh and that that existed before mentoring, but became something that became central um, to teaching, to being a parent, to being a writer, to being a friend, right? It's like yeah. you're just thinking, what did I say? How did I say it? Should it have been delivered that way? Things that I think anybody should and could benefit from, but don't always have the, you know, they don't, the, prof the profession they're in, the life they're in doesn't allow for that hyper level of reflection that mm. you know being a, a mentor facilitating those kind of conversations and doing so in a way 
because the, the goal is to, and this is true for regular students too, the goal is to facilitate that without them burning out or becoming overwhelmed or becoming self, um, self-defeating, right? They don't, you don't want to, you can find a thousand flaws in any new teacher and it, my job is not to point them out, but to, to make them feel like this is part of the normal process because it is. Um, and then how do we take one at a time and, and fix it? Are there any memories or any anecdotes of a time when you learned something from one of your students or a student teacher by chance? I mean, that kind of thing happens on a, a micro level. I see that a lot with, it's one of my favorite things that happens with reading, right? A, a student will come at any, I teach my students this reading is a process that is interactive and also it's like you have an algorithm in your mind, a schema that allows you to see things from a specific way. And there, you know, there are limitations to that, but there's also uh, a beauty to that because your mind picks things up that mine doesn't pick up, especially because mine is slightly ossified from the teacher point of view. Mm. Um, I'll come in thinking about Hamlet or Frankenstein and the philosophies that, you know, am I going to be teaching about the enlightenment or am I going to be teaching about epistemology um, in connection with these things? Uh, whereas this kid who is coming in and thinking about it just from whatever perspective they have from their home life or their friend life or the social life, mm-hmm. and they, they'll bring something up and then just be like, oh yeah, wow, I never ever thought about that and it's totally valid and that that's a wonderful teaching moment because it's you know there's this uh i have a pet peeve of teachers often say with poetry especially it's whatever you you think it is and Uh no it's it's whatever you it's whatever you can make valid within it right it's not there are limits to that it's not like i think it's about elephants when there are no elephants in the poem it has to be there um we have to see the the footprint at least you know and so when they come up with something that's startling in a way for me it's it's just proving this that that sort of spark and 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 interest um as far as with the mentoring i don't know that i've i think what i learned from the mentoring is they in a similar vein you know i talked about being ossified in my thinking and I think that happens with any profession. You you get into a routine, you get into what works, and you stick with it, which has its strengths. But a, a new teacher who is spending like all their time and energy trying to adapt to this new thing will come at a problem that you have a solution of your own, and they'll come at a problem in a totally different way. And mm. um, you know, as a mentor, it's not your job to make them into you. It's your job to make them into the best version of themselves. And so what's right. fun about that is seeing like, oh, I never would have addressed that in this way, but they did. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a wake up and allows you to sort of expand your own, you know, that that ability to reflect, that ability to think about, well, what am I doing? What am I not doing? How am I spending my time in the classroom? How am I spending my time with individual students? How do I deliver this? this um, critique um in a way that you know can startle you out of 
the normal ways in which you're you're thinking and seeing and you know another connection that we haven't talked about but is very um important to me in my life i, I have a 10 year old and i have a five-year-old <laughs> and and they do this to me all the time my five-year-old is asking me these crazy questions <laughs> that they're not they're not like the why is the sky blue questions they're they're these absurd surrealist questions like what would happen if that tree decided to fly <laughs> what would happen if i turned into a cheetah what would you do what if i turned into a human heart what would you do dad and <laughs> you know they're all poem prompts which yeah, is great yeah, they're, they're uh, poets in training it sounds like it's beautiful yeah and but what's, what's amazing is it's like you know you break that down well what is their thinking why are they why is this child asking this really strange question and it makes you realize like the ways in which we see the world can get so fixed um yeah. and and a child can can unfix it a little bit in a good way oh that's absolutely lovely there's so many ways right to approach this de to this deossification if that if that is such a word and yeah. please correct me if i'm wrong but in i like it. <laughs> speaking of your peer reviewing that you've done for various journals and and publications what mm -hmm have you taken from those experiences and has it helped in your deossification? Um, yeah, I mean, the more you read in any poetic circumstance, whether it's like I've bought this new book, or I'm reading a friend's work to help them with it, or I'm reading um, for peer review, I think all those add different perspectives. I think with the peer review specifically, What's interesting about it is you see just how much is out there, like how many people are writing. <laughs> yeah. Um, how often, like you can see in some ways, you can see the stages the writers are in, mm. like which writer is just starting out, which writer is, has been doing this for a while, which writer has developed clear voice for themselves. Mm. Um, and that helps me to think about where am I at and what am I doing and how am I um, doing it. Um, I think one of the things that helps me think differently about my writing is, is certainly working with other people that have different aesthetics than I do. Mm. Um, you know, I, I write in a, sometimes in a very spare way, I try to get rid of, um, articles. I try to get rid of adjectives. I don't, a lot of it is image based instead of narrative. And I have friends who write almost solely narrative poetry. And so the when I'm reading their work and when they're reading my work, it's an interesting thing. Oh, well, what's missing? What's what's working? And that's when my mentor brain works in because it's like the impulse of like, I need to strike out all their <laughs> these things that I would normally strike out. And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. they're this is not what they're going. That's not the aesthetic they're going for. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that they are going for? How can I make them the best version of themselves rather than what I would do? Um, and so there's like a humility in reading um, and understanding that there are different intentions. And that's not to guess what their intention is. It's just kind of seeing what is their craft creating and what are the ways in which you think that pattern is emerging so that you can help them hone it a little bit. And then, you know, also call attention. What are you seeing and not seeing? Right. And that's such a superpower, in my opinion, is, is just having that ability to remove your own perspective from the work and look at it objectively and say, what are they trying to achieve? 
It just seems like uh, that's something that not a lot of folks just have intuitively or are willing to craft within themselves is <laughs> like that, that skill to, to just look at what the other person is serving. So in terms of criticism, uh, that, that's just such a great tool. Now, do you think that for, for you and your process, let me ask you this, how do you put a work together? How does a, a work of poetry come together for you? Uh, it's it's some somewhat of it is like for the last year it's been uh, a process of just thinking about different things along a similar theme and trying to write to it but the actual form of it doesn't emerge until i'm literally writing about it on the page and it i realize okay this is definitely a prose poem this is this is going to be a lyric poem that you know has stanza. This one is going to be you know I kind of just tinker with it, and sometimes I'll write multiple versions of it. But the, for the past year, I've been writing almost completely about climate change, unless something jumped out at me, um, and been trying to work toward a chapbook and then a larger manuscript. And I I have now a a larger uh, full collection that I you know kind of been honing and tinkering with and building upon, um, and so. Some of that is like, I'll just see a news report and it'll make me want to go in some direction or I'll, I'll find a, um, a climate artist's mm. work and I will write to it or, or write a, an ekphrastic version of it. Um, a couple times I've seen, read other, like an Ilya Kaminsky's very famous, We Lived Happily During the War. Yeah. Um, about a year ago, I read that poem and I, I was like, we lived happily at the end of the world is kind of <laughs> what we're doing now. And the, I thought about what, what would that look like and wrote a poem about that. Um, but my process is very like, just kind of start with an image or an idea and see what emerges. But almost always I'm starting with it, um, a thing or an action and building off of it and seeing where it goes. And then there's a cluster of, of words and ideas, sometimes in the language of, of like if, if it's based on something, like I was reading a book of, uh, it was Nathaniel Rich's essays, and it was the specific one on starfish just dying. Um, they were tearing their own arms off. Oh, wow. And yeah, they, they didn't image. know really. Yeah. They didn't really know why. Well, they do it. They know why they do it, but they don't know what was causing it. They, they, starfish do this because they're uh, they're stressed, and they they think, okay, wow. <laughs> maybe if I tear tear this limb off, it'll uh, you know get rid of whatever is ailing me. But they end up tearing themselves to pieces. Um, oh, and the eco the ecosystem effect was the starfish eat sea urchin, which keeps the sea urchin population down. And the sea urchins, when left unchecked, will eat an entire kelp forest, which then diminishes the biodiversity of the Pacific coastline. Mm -hmm. And I, so I was reading about that. And I uh, just developed an idea around that. Actually, we worked on this one collaboratively with um, Adrian Dallas Frandel. We, we've written about five or six poems together. And so I started something out, and he, he came back with a, a variation where we sent each other the article to think about um, or images. Like I looked at, I think I looked up the starfish and I looked up the barons that were connected to the lack of starfish. And mm. I sent that as images. And so I'll, that's kind of like, this is a collaborative version of what I do um, as well, where I'll find something that's happening 
um, and think about it. But some of the stuff just sits in the back of my mind for a long time. Like I have a poem that I wrote. I was trying to write for a year on the, I guess it was like a year and a half ago. I mean, this happens every year now, but the, <laughs> do you remember when San Francisco skies turned orange uh, from the, from the, the wildfires? So I oh, was like, yeah, I want to write. Yeah. And I wanted to write about that. And I just couldn't figure out what to do with it. And then I was, this is where teaching really serves me. I was, I was teaching, um, TA great houses, um, burning high button poem, which is mm. not at all about any of this and teaching the form of what is, uh, erasure, how does erasure work on a political level? Um, and then the form of the high button, mm. I just wasn't sure what, uh, to do at first, but then I was like, well, burning high button, burning wildfires the the this is um i'm gonna make a, a a poem about that and i just decided to to see where it goes and i i wrote about um i didn't start with the fires i started with a lyrical person talking to their child my children end up in my poems uh often where mm. i'll have a fictitious speaker talking to their child as I would talk to mine and, mm. um, you know, thinking about the, how do I look at this nostalgically? And I, or how, what do I do <laughs> yeah. with the, the, an erasure poem to, to think about nostalgia as an erasure of, um, an erasure of the way we are actually seeing the present, right? Nostalgia erases the bad stuff. Yeah. But what do we, what do we do when the bad stuff is everywhere? Like a burning, like wildfires surrounding our city and turning it orange. Mm. Um, so was, that's kind of where my process is just yeah. blending these weird, these real things that are happening, but they're very surreal. So I'm trying to write these, this blend of the surreal in the mundane. Mm. Yeah. It seems like that's the way, the only way that we can make sense of the world is to, is to go a little abstract and, and try to find cohesion in, you know, the the yep. larger picture because none of the none of it makes sense on some days. But I meant to ask you about the responsibility of poets if there is such a thing. Do you think creative people, writers, do we have a responsibility to to use poetry, to use the written word as 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 a piece of activism? Does that innately have to be spelled out? Or, or can a poem be something more intimate? Or can we not separate the two? I, I struggle with this a lot. I think about it a lot. I like teaching political poetry a lot. Um, and so that's, that's part of, so I would say my instinct is that I gravitate to people and poets that are trying to explain something uh, on that level. So I, I love Carolyn Forche's poetry for that and Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic as a whole for that. And what's nice about uh, Ilya's work is it kind of does that, what you just described, this blending of mm. this intimacy within such an awful political landscape. Um, whether we have a responsibility, it, it that's where things get tricky because it's like you write what you can there are also stories that aren't yours 
to write about. And this is something I think about a lot with the climate change because um, there are areas of the world that are not, I don't live in those areas. I don't live the life. It would be reckless of me to write a poem that centers that experience as if it was mine. And so I try to keep things within my own realm of, of politics. But mm. I, I do think that the, the, one of the interesting things about politics and poetry is that if we're bearing witness, do, is it going to have this amazing political effect in real time? And I'm dubious about that. Mm. But it, will it create that effect for posterity if the poem you know is taught or is read or you know to use Ilya again it, it, when the ukraine uh i mean when ukraine was invaded uh, by russia a month and a half ago mm -hmm. uh almost two months ago the the his poem became of you know was everywhere uh, right. lived happily during and you know you think about what is the efficacy of that are people are people understand i mean there was a big misunderstanding of the poem at the time um are people are people using that to reflect on their own lives right like i've taught poems that come out of the vietnam war for the same with the same sort of you know margaret atwood's it's dangerous to read newspapers mm. um carolyn forche is the colonel again right they <laughs> they're dealing with these um, these feelings of what does it mean to be witness? And there's a powerlessness in that. I think it is, is important from a lyrical standpoint, right? We're trying to, as poets, understand an element of our world. We're in there, and there's something inherently political in, in the ability to do that in face of it. Mm. Um, whether that, you know, I think when we talk about something being activist or political, we talk about it in terms of it making this effect. You know, I'm writing this manuscript on climate change. Do I think that it will affect people in a way to get them to change their behaviors? I don't, I, I mean, that would be a, a delusion of grandeur on my part, I think. Mm. Um, would it get people to recognize something they've already felt? That I think is more possible. Um, it's, it's in some ways, like you could see that as a futile gesture, I'm preaching to acquire, mm. or you could see that as like a furthering of a cause that we all agree on. We, we want to feel, um, we want to continue to make, um, some sort of movement towards my poetry would be, uh, a discussion of that, but I don't know that it would be in, in a sort of it wouldn't have the forcefulness of of action in in my mind um I, and i'm okay with that i think that's that's one of the things that most poetry is able to achieve and i think i'm trying to think of a poem that was written in real time that had a real-time effect on the on the the politics mm. i don't know yeah yeah no, that's a, it's, it's a lot to ponder, a lot to take in. And I do have just a couple more questions to respect your time. But yeah. now that you're a parent, how does that shift your, your tone? Or is there more urgency in the kind of work that you do? Um, because you're, you're a parent now and you have children. 
Um, yeah, I would say that some of it is directly thinking about my relationship to them. What would happen if I'm gone? What will happen when I'm gone? Um, you know, some of my poetry focuses on the cancer that took away my grandmother oh. that, um, you know, this is actually when I was eight. Um, and so I think about the fact that I grew up without getting to fully know her, you know, I have an eight year old's memory of that. Mm. And then, um, you know, my father, um, was diagnosed with prostate cancer a couple of years ago. And that kind of, you know, plays in the back of my head. And I think about my own mortality in connection with my children. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what am I leaving for them? What am I, you know, whether it's a poem that's just describing my relationship with my daughter hiking her, which I have a couple of poems like that, or whether it's um, something deeper. I think the, the climate stuff is about, in many ways, about what are we leaving to the next generation? What are they existing in? And I was trying to build this speculative look at um if it all goes like what you know we we spend a lot of time saying it will it will and i i went to a a place where it was like okay well it does what's next Mm. yeah and I, i think i think thinking about my own children in that you know the the urgency of creating something that that I, and, you know, in some ways that's a selfish project where it's like, I'm thinking about that in order, whether it's the cancer that, you know, my father has, or whether it's climate change for my children, I'm thinking about it deeply because I, in some ways I'm preparing myself for some sort of hurt or loss. And mm-hmm. that's what poetry does for me. A lot of the times is like, how do I prepare myself by speculating about it and before it happens? Yeah. Last question here. It's a two-part question. What's poetry done for your quality of life in all of your years of of living with it, being with it, and developing your own voice? And can you single out a moment where there there was pure happiness brought to you by poetry? You know, when I was younger, it was just kind of like the awe of somebody being able to create this clever thing that you know some of the physical poets and some of the modernist poets doing this this clever work with language and that sort of surprise that um your mind can can have when reading it's like oh wow they did that that's amazing how did that and it, it you know it that resetting of a, a point of view or even just a way in which we understand language like i think of victoria chang's obituary uh obit her obituary form in that book if you haven't read it it basically is a series of she's meditating on grief for uh, a parent but does so through the an obituary of thing like metaphysical things so it's like metaphor died on this day and it explains what that means but does so in a way that also then connects it back to that grief that's very personal to Victoria or her speaker. And it, those types of things cause me a lot of like, I really, really enjoy being able to be unsettled mm-hmm. and resettled within that framework. But I would say the, the, the mo- that's like a sort of intellectual surprise 
um, and process. But then there's a profound emotional side that comes with that. Like when you resettle into a new perspective and you then reflect on how that it connects to your life, I think that's really profound and interesting, um, not just on an academic lo- level, but on a on a personal level. And I think poetry, more than any other writing form, can do that. Beautiful. Beautiful note to end on. Jared, I really want to thank you for your time today, for sharing these wonderful insights and stories, and of course, for your wonderful work, and of course, the work that you do and continue to do as an educator. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, no problem. Hope you have a great Sunday. Talk soon. All right, you too. Bye. Bye.